Hey everyone, just a reminder, if you're enjoying the show, consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Reviews help us move up in the search rankings so we can reach more cyclists. You can also support us by sharing our podcast with your friends or on social media. Thanks for listening. Here's the episode. Hello and welcome to the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Jason Hammond. I'm here with Todd Norwood. Hey Jason, welcome back. How are, how are things going for you? Things are going at least okay. They're just moving along. I mean, we're sort of still stuck in this stay at home. Um, I guess for the non-American listeners, it's uh, it's not looking too good right now from a, uh, a COVID standpoint, but uh, we're doing okay. I'm doing okay, personally. Very, very good. And so our now normal, I suppose, advance warning that if there are any technical issues, we apologize in advance, but I think we've been doing okay as far as the internet goes, but hopefully the powers that be in controlling our internet connection for the next little bit as we're doing this podcast will uh, be in alignment with us and allow it to flow smoothly. Yeah, the Comcast operator's right there, ready to pull the plug in, uh, in five, 10 minutes, so we'll see. Uh, so Todd, what are we talking about today? This is a bit of a follow-up on a prior episode we did where we outlined what are the training zones and went through one to seven, described what they affected in terms of your physiology. And so we thought it'd be good to follow up and talk about what does a workout look like? What are some examples of workouts that fit into those zones? And how, you know, how do you integrate that into your plan, into your training? Um, and I think, you know, talking, you came off talking about periodization. So we talked about a little bit how you have this evolution or, um, change over time and what your workouts are going to be depending on what your objectives are in that specific phase. So coupling that with the different zones, we'll talk a little bit about some workouts that you might do if you're targeting a specific zone. And that said, we're going to focus really on the, the fundamentals or the basics. So there's certainly different ways to work out. I think one of the things I like to say, or you, know, you certainly hear in other sports is, well, you need to practice like you, you're gonna play. Uh, in which case that would mean, well, you can't go to practice and be lazy. You need to run hard, you need to work hard in practice you know, with whatever sport you play. And cycling analogy for me and Jason, you can let me know if you feel differently is, well, hey, if I have a, particular race coming up, I know it's going to be three and a half hours long and there's a real punchy climb at the end. I might want to do a ride that's three and a half hours roughly with a certain intensity. And then towards the end of my workout, I'm going to have some punchy efforts to train my body to get ready for that sort of an effort. So we probably won't go too far into that and really just focus on the specifics around, okay, what is a zone one, zone two, so on and so forth workout? What does that look like? All right. So there are actually a few different philosophies on coaching and how to prepare an athlete correctly for different races. There are some who say, well, we get the most response to a certain effort at the beginning of the workout, so we should train it at the beginning of the workout. Other people say, you have to sprint at the end of the race, so maybe we should train sprinting at the end of our workouts. And uh, like you said, Todd, we're not going to dive into that. We're just going to focus on the individual parts of the workout that can train each zone. So I will include the link to the training zones episode if you want to have a refresher on that. But I don't think that you necessarily need to have listened to that to take something away from this episode. But the goal is to focus on what workouts help improve each zone so we can be the best athlete in each of these dif different areas. If you notice, 
I have a lot of races or I, I enjoy efforts where they're really long. It seems like zone two is something I need to train. What are some workouts that will train my zone two? Hopefully is one of the questions we can answer in this episode. Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, this is one of these things where your mileage will vary and everybody's experience is a little bit different. And so for some of these workouts, two hours is a good you know time for you to be in zone two for one athlete. And it's four hours for a different athlete, just depending on your individual development and your stage of your training program and where you are in your in the periodization and your evolution as a individual. So take it all with a grain of salt, knowing that there's going to be some uh, personalization that goes around these different workouts as we work through them. All right. So are we starting with zone one active recovery? Indeed. We're going to start at the bottom. So I think this is the simplest and easiest zone to work with. There's not a ton going on here. As you mentioned, it's active recovery. So these are very light rides that you're going to be doing. Uh, this is really about recovery more than anything else. Uh, so the important part about your power numbers or your heart rate numbers, however you choose to train, uh, we'll focus more on power. But the important part about your power numbers here are that they're low. Uh, which is probably one of the rare times that you're trying to find a low number, but you want to have really actually low power, more or less, if we use our FTP as a reference, probably going to be under 55% of your FTP. And these rides are also going to be short, probably on the order of an hour plus or minus, depending on what your usual weekly training bulk looks like. And these are rides that should make you feel good uh, when you're done and maybe you use it to set up other active recovery modalities that you might do on a recovery day. So, I mean, that's a stretching routine or a yoga routine or um, whatever else that you like to do to make yourself feel better. For me, the only workout in active recovery is one hour, 50% of your threshold. The key here is don't spike. I know a lot of people will say, oh, my average power was 50% of my threshold, but I did spend significant amount of time over 200 watts. That's not active recovery. Active recovery is the most boring, you know, 150 watts, 140 watts, whatever the math is for you. You just sit there and you just do that slow power. If a grandma passes you, that's fine. Let them pass you. And the whole point is it's sort of like an active massage for your muscles. And so we just want an hour of blood flow, hour of light use, keep the cadence up high and go home and like Todd said, stretch or do some yoga or do some other recovery that can help de-stress you and get you ready for other workouts that are gonna be harder. Yeah, I think that's perfect. Good point about the cadence. And sometimes for me, this is just a nice like meditation on my bike sort of a workout. I'm just, I'm getting out and you know, enjoying my bike a little bit and taking it easy. And this is also where that concept of normalized power comes in. So your average power and your normalized power should be basically one-to-one. -one. Those things should be equivalent. Um, otherwise, if they're too disparate, you've been working a little bit too hard for an active recovery ride. Yep, we want our muscles to feel better the next day. And if we spend time outside of the active recovery zone, we may be compromising that. We won't be getting the recovery we need. And that will make it harder to complete workouts later in the week. Perfect. So should we move on to zone two here? Sure. So this is going to be our endurance zone. And just from a number standpoint, we're going to move from 56 up to about 75% of our FTP with these rides. And these are going to be long rides. We're really trying to build our endurance with this. 
and long is probably going to be defined again by your stage of development as an athlete and your stage within the various uh, periods of your season and where where you are and so you're going to try to keep whatever it is 70 maybe 75 percent and it can be an hour two three four uh, it really depends on you know, who you are and again we probably want to keep it close to uh, equal in terms of the normalized power and the average power and that you're staying consistent but unlike the active recovery if you do have a little bit more fluctuation here maybe you climb a hill and it spikes up a little bit um, that's that's reasonable that's reasonably acceptable uh, as opposed to the active recovery where you're really trying to keep it pretty mellow yep i would say for endurance a good a good idea is to start with say hour hour and a half and slowly build up over two to three weeks to getting to the point where your longest ride is as long as your longest event. And so that's really good for competitive athletes because the categories in USA Cycling at least have different lengths for road races and crits based on your category. So the, the P12 races will be four hours, so my longest endurance rides will be four hours. Whereas if you're a Cat 3, it's normally two and a half hours, so you would have a shorter endurance ride. Normally you wouldn't really do an endurance ride longer than your longest race. So that's that's a good cue. If you're non-competitive, you have to find a balance on your own. And it's more based on if you're in your first couple years of development, stick to two hour endurance rides, maybe a couple three hour rides. If you're a rider who's been riding and training for four or five, six years, you probably know enough to know that you can handle four or five Maybe even six-hour rides. That's how long the uh, the pros do their endurance rides for some six hours. And for endurance training, you should just hit that number, hit that seventy percent. I think I actually go even a little bit lower for my endurance rides, and that's because I personally have I have difficulty holding that seventy seventy-five percent. Um, so I will do closer to sixty-six, like two-thirds of my threshold. But the whole point is you do want to maintain that that number throughout but it's okay if you fluctuate as todd said make sure you maintain your power below your threshold so if you're up on a climb you can go into tempo you can go up towards sweet spot but don't ever go anaerobic we're really focusing on developing our aerobic endurance during this zone i think one of the things if you've never done an honest zone two ride i think you, I think you look at the neck oh there's seven zones that's not very hard if you've never done an honest zone two ride where you've had the power meter and you said, I'm just going to pin it at whatever this number is, 66, 70% of my threshold for two, two and a half, three hours, whatever the appropriate time frame is, it's not actually easy. You, you will find you're going to fatigue a little bit. It's actually ends up being a, a fairly challenging ride if you've got the numbers right and you have the appropriate uh, duration for your level as an athlete. You should be able to do it again. That's what I've always been sort of told as a coach. Like if you if you did it right, you could probably do it tomorrow, just because the load is low enough and the intensity is low enough. But at the same time, you should be tired towards the end. It it should be a challenge for you to maintain that level consistently toward the end of the ride. And that's when you know you've done it right. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Todd. Is that the point is that you should be able to do this over and over again. So the reason I choose something like two thirds of my threshold is because 
like obviously if it's one workout and I just have to go as hard as I can for four hours, you know, in races I can do some 80% of my threshold, but can I tomorrow do something after that race where I do 80% threshold for four hours? No, I can't even get out of bed. The point is it needs to be low enough that we could potentially do it the next day because we want to accumulate this fatigue over and over and get the aerobic endurance, but not blow ourselves up for the rest, rest of the week of training. Exactly. And these are the rides that you'll do repeatedly in your base phase. And so you need to keep in mind that sort of a level where you say, okay, I can, I can wake up tomorrow and I could do this again. And then you've got it dialed. Yeah. It's always interesting for new riders when you tell them to do an endurance ride. And if you look at their power numbers, it's, it's really not intuitive to just hold this like low moderate pace for two hours, three hours, like literally don't spike at all never go over threshold and just keep it really flat it seems kind of weird but if you do it for weeks and weeks your ability to produce power in that zone it gets really easy to hold that power and that's really when you start to get fast yep so patience pays off with those zone two efforts and then now we have zone three tempo so yep is our tempo zone from a number standpoint we're looking at 76 to 90 percent of our FTP. So we're working a little bit harder here. Uh, you talked about this many times, Jason. This is the part where in a long road race where you might be riding at this level for some amount of time during the event. And so there's a, a certain value, especially as you do longer races, in making sure you're capable of maintaining power at this level for a prolonged period of time. Yep. So a road race, you just hold this. That's sort of the barrier for entry, I think, for road racing, especially in California, is can you hold tempo for four hours? And is your threshold, you know, moderately high? If you can hold uh, if you can hold tempo for four hours, you won't get dropped in a road race. And the key to winning the road race then is being able to sprint after those four hours. That that's the next level of development. Sure. And so, as such, these tempo workouts can be long, uh, similar sometimes in length. Not as as your longest endurance ride, but there's certainly some overlap. Um, is you know between the sh the shorter end of the endurance rides and the longer end of tempo rides, so you may do something like tempo for thirty to sixty minutes, depending on your level. You may do uh, shorter repeats of tempo. Uh, again, depends on your level and your particular objectives of the racing that you're you're trying to do. I don't know if you have particular favorites, Jason, or how you've approached it in the past. So yeah, tempo is exactly as you said. So I spend a lot of time in tempo because I enjoy the road races the most. Those are the ones I want to get good results in. So for me, when I start doing tempo towards the end of the base period, it starts with two by 30 minutes and we just slowly progress up to two by two by 45, two by 60, two by 75, up to two by 90. And if for the two by 90s, you get a little bit of a break. Like you can take a minute or two and drop down into active recovery or endurance in the middle just to, to break up the effort. But yeah, you could be spending some three hours in a workout doing tempo if you know, I, I have seven or eight years of uh, training behind me. So be careful if if you're a little bit newer, but the idea is exactly the same. Start with two by 15, maybe even at tempo in, in the tempo zone, probably leaning towards the lower half of the zone. And then the next workout, two by 20, two by 25, two by 30, 
and slowly progress up to longer values. And one of the big things with tempo is it's, it's largely a muscular effort. Your muscles really get tired over time because you are using actually a lot of glycogen, a lot of glucose to do these efforts, and you just get this muscular fatigue. So building up slowly will allow your muscles to adapt properly over time to this moderate intensity effort. But no, there's no yeah. there's no fancy intervals or anything. It's, dude, you just have to be in this zone for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 50 minutes at a time. Very similar in some regard to the endurance rides. It's just a long, a long time at a power. And the big thing with the endurance zones, though, is that the endurance is doable every day. You could do a four hour mm -hmm. endurance ride just about every day. You should probably take, you know, one time a week off or something. But tempo is muscular fatigue. There, there's a lot of fatigue when you finish that ride. And so the reason we do endurance is because the total time on the bike can be higher. Tempo, if, uh, if you do too much tempo, you will absolutely blow up. Right. Yes. Yeah, so you're accumulating more fatigue with the tempo intensity rides than you are with a comparable duration endurance ride. Yep. Absolutely. So I don't know if you want to count sweet spot as a special zone or you just want to skip it all together. But well, now that I said, it, I feel semi obligated. We can talk, talk about, about sweet it. spot as part of threshold, I think. Oh, okay. All right. So anyhow, threshold, um, is typically defined as that's the fourth zone typically going to be defined as 91% up to 105% of your FTP. And then within, within that, there's this magical uh, sweet spot zone. And I've seen it defined different ways. Um, the reference I have here is 88 to 93. I've seen it up as high as 97 in some places. Hmm. Uh, but I, I usually use 93 as the ceiling for for sweet spot in my personal training, if I'm going to go that route, but I've for, for what it's worth, I've seen it uh, referred to as, as high as 97 in some places. So I normally just say 90% is sweet spot. Yeah. Like the, so like top of the tempo zone in your mind yep. is sweet spot. Yeah. So sweet spot is the, the crossover point between tempo and threshold. And the idea here is that at threshold, you are starting to accumulate lactic acid and Kind of the idea of sweet spot is that we're not really accumulating lactic acid yet, but we're using as much of our aerobic capacity as possible. So the reason people like sweet spot efforts is because we're maximally fatiguing the aerobic system, we couldn't get the maximum response from it, which that's kind of the goal. And the problem with it is though, it, it is definitely fatiguing on the muscles. So you have to find that right balance between improving your aerobic system through shorter efforts that are harder and being able to do your workout the next day. And so, uh, again, for me, both of these workouts have similar durations because they're, they overlap in intensity, uh, be it threshold or sweet spot. So, I mean, a typical thing, especially for a threshold, is a, a 2 by 20 That's a pretty standard workout. Or 3 by 15 sometimes you see maybe 3 by 20 depending, again, depending on your uh, level of development. And you may see similar things uh, with a sweet spot type of a workout. Uh, although sweet spot, you may push a little longer because the intensity is lower with those. Yeah. So for a sweet spot, I would say normally two by 20, two by 30 even are good mm -hmm. options. Um, but actually for a threshold, I know uh, with the coaches I've worked with and some other athletes, a person would normally never do two by 20s at threshold. And normally you would do 95% of threshold. And that's because threshold's actually really hard. It's hard. 
Yeah. It's really hard. And so actually it's more common to do something like three by eight minutes or three by 10 minutes at 100 to 103% of threshold. So a workout like that will actually help you practice staying right at threshold. For example, if you're a time trialist and you're doing, uh, rather than doing a 15 minute time trial, like some local time trials are pretty short. If you're a time trialist who's preparing for a 30, 40, 50 minute time trial, you might do these three by eight minute, three by 10 minute workouts in order to practice sitting at that really painful threshold. Mm-hmm. Whereas most uh, road racers, they would actually prefer to do something like the 2x30s or the 2x20s at around sweet spot or maybe a couple percent over sweet spot because the goal of those athletes is to train the aerobic system. And like we said, the point of sweet spot is you can train the aerobic system with less total time. So you get a similar stimulus to tempo, but it doesn't take as long. Um, But at the same time, you get more fatigue. So finding that right balance between the two. Um, But for a road racer, you just want that aerobic stimulus. Whereas for someone like a time trialist, you want to be able to hold that threshold longer. So you're willing to do the shorter efforts at the higher intensity to train your threshold. All right. I said I wasn't going to do non-standard workouts, but I have to because I'm a mountain biker. And so I do things a little bit differently because mountain biking has a little bit different demand. So I have to, I just have to insert this one right here. Okay. Uh, which is the idea of doing a sweet spot interval. So that, you know, 90 ish plus or minus percent. Uh, but then you know, having some accelerations built into there. So you're going actually above threshold and then coming back and recovering as uh, so maybe 20 seconds or so um, up and then down for back two minutes at back at that sweet spot and then in and out over the course of your 20 minutes because that's a little bit more like a mountain biking effort. It's it's never, never quite constant. Uh, So there's some variability there. Yeah. I believe the purpose of workouts like that is um, when your aerobic system is maximally used, it's harder for us to shuttle lactic acid out. It's harder for us to refresh from an anaerobic effort. So practicing, uh, maintaining that aerobic system at its maxed out rate while trying to recover from an anaerobic effort provides some kind of unique stimulus. And I think Egan Bernal actually did quite a few of these style workouts leading up to the Tour de France. It works. It, it makes sense because the whole the whole point is we're trying to learn how to recover from anaerobic efforts while still maintaining our aerobic efforts. Right. This is unlike a track sprinter where you know you do this crazy anaerobic effort and then you can sort of just let the pedals go. In a road race, you may have attacked, or I think a crit is an even better example. You may have done this attack and you don't want to get dropped when it doesn't work. So you have to try and get your legs back while staying in the pack, which you could be doing sweet spot to stay in the pack. Mm-hmm. So, okay. We, we digressed from the theme, but I think it's just an interesting addition to your typical intervals there. And those ones hurt. I mean, um, <laughs> ramping up into anaerobic. Mm-hmm. I tend to, because I do you know, so many miles, so many hours, I, I shy away from these really painful workouts. One, because of the mental motivation can a lot of the time sap away and you aren't as interested in doing these really painful workouts. But two, just the muscular fatigue is so high. And If you're someone who doesn't have as much time to train and you want maximum stimulus in less time, these really awful, painful workouts, they can actually be beneficial to you. Whereas if you have more time, you want to really be conservative about how tired your muscles are. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So zone five, 
thinking about really training our VO2 max a little bit more. We did a whole episode on VO2 max. So if you want to check that one out, uh, we did talk about a few different workouts and a few protocols that researchers had thought were the best. Todd, do you want to summarize those or do you have, you have probably have different preferences than me, if I remember correctly from the episode. Yes. And so we'll go just base, basic VO2 max intervals at first, and then we can jump into not quite basic ones or the, the variation around the theme. Okay. So VO2 max zone is going to be roughly 106 to 120% of your FTP. Uh, there's some wiggle room around that depending on what your VO2 max value is relative to your FTP, but that's generally a, a reasonable starting point. You should really just do whatever you can handle. Your first workout may be too stressful or under stressful because you don't really know where that relationship between your threshold and your VO2 max is. Traditionally, my threshold has been relatively low compared to my VO2 max. So I'm closer to like 125, 128% of my threshold, but that's probably because my threshold is low rather than my VO2 max is high. But don't be afraid to go over or go under if you have a, a potentially underdeveloped anaerobic system or a potentially overdeveloped anaerobic system. Uh, the goal of the VO2 max intervals is right to train the aerobic system, train the lactate shuttling and get used to these, these efforts that you don't have enough oxygen for. So typically, if we just talk about work time for your VO2 max intervals, we'll ignore the structure of them first. We just talk about work time. For most folks, it's probably going to be on the order of 20 to 30 minutes in a given workout for most. Maybe if you're better more, maybe if you're uh, newer to cycling, it might be a little bit less, but it's probably going to be in that range. And if you, if you disagree, Jason, you should, should voice your dissent. I guess I would say for a new rider, first year or two, you should probably be sticking to something closer to 15 or 16 minutes for the time spent in the zone. So say your VO2 max zone starts at 320. Any, any time spent over 320 counts towards those 15 or 20 minutes. As you get older, developmentally older, you can start to do 20 minutes, 25 minutes. I would say there aren't very many people doing more than 30 minutes of, of VO2 max intervals, um, mostly because back to the fatigue part, you can do more than 20 minutes or 30 minutes of VO2 max, but we want to be able to work out the next day. So once you get to mm -hmm. 30 minutes, your muscles are just toast. So there is this balance of we know that VO2 max is trained maximally. It's it, VO2 max training is proportional to the amount of time spent at VO2 max or mm -hmm. within 90% of your VO2 max. So we want to increase the amount of time that we spend in that zone, but we also want to work out the next day. So what's the right balance as you develop as a rider that time window increases? But yeah, start with 15 minutes, go up to, I think, you know, personally, my workout is um, six by four minutes. And so that's 24, 24 minutes. So I, I'm not even doing 30 minutes at a time. You, you don't need to do that much. And, and that's because you have other workouts to do. And 24 minutes is still a lot. You still get a lot of stimulus in response to that. So now, now you already jump to time frames. So typically these intervals are going to be anywhere from three to six minutes long, roughly. Well, um, I would never do a six minute VO2 max effort help. 
you would you would drop your intensity though a little bit yeah so yeah as the effort gets longer your average the power would be lower i would say most people don't do more than five minutes but you could you could potentially do six minutes i know professional cyclists can hold their vo2 max for up to like eight minutes uh, but you know they're they're not really that's mortal the, that's like the, the theoretical <laughs> upper end of the range of co- to call it a vo2 max effort yeah so but for an athlete i would be concerned with the motivation for an athlete to do a six minute oh. vo2 max oh. interval yeah. so if, if we're giving suggestions on workouts i three, would not three suggest... minutes is super solid yeah three to four minutes is good for most people so uh seven by three minutes is a, also a very popular time yep. zone um, because you only really start to be in pain at about 2.15. So you have 45 minutes or 45 seconds of suffering uh, at the end of each set. And so uh, it's a lot more manageable. Uh, I prefer six by four minutes because you only have to do six intervals then. And you get a little more total stimulus time. You also, Eight there by is. Three, if you, you know, really want to get those 24 minutes in. But yep. then again, yeah. so you'd have to do, you'd have to gut it out for one more. Yeah, that'd be. I can't do eight inter- intervals, but I can do six intervals. And uh, I know Todd, you spoke about in the VO2 Max episode that you like to do sort of these shorter, um, intermittent, the short, the short VO2 Max intervals. Yes, the thirty seconds on, fifteen seconds off. Repeat. Uh, officially, the research protocol is uh, thirteen times, and then have a break in between. Uh, so officially, the protocol is thirteen times 30 seconds with 15 second uh, rest periods, then a three minute break, uh, like active recovery, and then repeat the 13 effort block twice more. So three sets total, and that works out to be about 20 minutes of effort. I like that, you know, I've ended up evolving that a little bit. So I think we end up roughly at the same spot in terms of workout time. And so I'll, start when i start those efforts i'll do just that like it'll be just that effort and then i'm cooked and that's good and then you know as i progress into those workouts i will actually add a three to four minute vo2 max interval at the end of Mm -hmm. that uh, block about those blocks um to get and then i end up with 23 24 minutes of total time yeah, so why pick the short efforts versus the longer efforts? It's all a personal preference. So I think the studies have sort of shown that you can get a similar response to these combined shorter efforts versus one long block. So uh, some riders are, let me just stick it out for four minutes. Other riders are, I kind of like those 15 seconds of, uh, of relaxation in the middle. And so I I don't really like ramping back up. I, th- I think that's really the problem is the, uh, you see that, that number tick over on your clock and you're like oh i gotta gotta ramp it back up again 15 15 seconds is not very long it's it's funny because it's your first few efforts and when you get into it like oh 30 seconds on 15 seconds off this feels like i have plenty of time to recover and then number 11 that 15 seconds feels like it's about three seconds like i gotta go again but Again, this is like I like this for mountain biking because mountain biking is so variable in terms of the terrain uh, influencing your power. And there's usually high variation between your normalized power and your average power. So for me, this makes sense. And I think that originally, actually, the researchers proposed it because they were, uh, to your point earlier, Jason, 
trying to figure out, well, how do we maximize the stimulus, how we maximize the time in zone or the time at the desired level of intensity. And their thought was, well, if we have people do 30 seconds on and a little break, then maybe they can maintain the average power in each of these 30 second chunks better than it would be if it was you know, three to four minutes constant effort. Part of the thing that you should consider when deciding between these two is, are you the type of rider who has trouble with the changes in speed in a group ride? You may be interested in doing the shorter efforts, learning how to ramp back up the power and stay in, you know, hold your position in a pack or something like that. Whereas a rider who, like for example, in a road race, someone attacks off the front and the whole field is doing VO2 max to try and chase them down that would be a reason to do the longer efforts. So there is part of the consideration for which of these to do is which one do you struggle with? And there is this mentality effect of, well, I've held VO2 max for four minutes at a time, so I'll be fine on this short, punchy climb versus mm -hmm. someone else who's, oh, these surges are really tough. Oh, I, I've done a workout where I got to surge every 30 seconds, and so I'll be fine with these surges in the pack. So uh, considerations like that, what are your personal areas of weakness and what can you do to help improve them? Uh, that can help help you decide between these two styles of training your VO2 max. So I'm going to go on a limb here and pull in something you mentioned with the explosive training episode, which was this idea of muscle relaxation, right? Like muscles turning on versus muscles turning off. Mm -hmm. And maybe there's a little bit of a common thread there with the alternating style of being able to like turn it down and then turn it back up again relatively quickly. Slightly different time frames, but maybe some overlap with that conceptually. Yeah, or at least uh, changing the neural pathways in the same way you would with explosive power to accommodate mm -hmm. the demands of your efforts. All right, so you move on to zone six here. Yeah, let's get into these two ultra high intensity zones. The, the really, the really high hard efforts. So uh, level six is more thinking about your anaerobic capacity. These efforts are going to be typically between 121 to 150% of your FTP. Again, it's probably somewhat contingent on the relationship between your VO2 max and your FTP. So it might be maybe 130% in your case, Jason, to 150%. But <laughs> at any at any rate, uh, you know, this is going to be a little bit higher intensity. And with the higher intensity, we're going to have shorter efforts. And so these efforts might be 30 seconds, a minute, you know, maybe two minutes tops at this at this level and typically you're not really spending a ton of time at this zone when you're doing your workouts i mean even for a fairly strong rider under 20 minutes is sufficient in terms of stimulus of work time um, for this level of intensity yeah i would say even lower um your total time in zone could be 10 minutes or 12 mm -hmm. minutes for something like this um, I, I laughed because when you said 250%, when you said the zone, I was... No, 150%. Oh, I, so I was thinking, actually, I've done some neuromuscular workouts where you're doing 200% of threshold for 30 or 45 seconds. That sounds I, terrible. Yeah, it, it's awful, but don't be afraid of going even higher for neuromuscular capacity. So remember the way our energy systems work is you're going to blow through your sprint system, your your uh, creatine phosphate system right at the beginning of any of these neuromuscular efforts. And then the next stage is burning through your anaerobic capacity. And that's what we're trying to train is we're trying to absolutely burn up our anaerobic uh, capacity. So 
let's do a really hard effort. It could be 30 seconds at 200%, 45 seconds at 180%, whatever of these you prefer. I think a classic one is just over a minute. So what you would do is you sprint and it should be not an all out sprint, but a pretty hard sprint. And then as soon as you're done your sprint, you know, 10, maybe 15 seconds, you do one minute full gas. You know, at the end of that one minute, you should be hanging off your bike, just barely keeping it up and just absolutely push everything out. In the same way, if you ever watch a, a one kilometer time trial at the track world championships or something that, you know, they're all the riders are falling off the bike at the end of the ride because they've pushed out everything out of that anaerobic capacity. Doing that in a workout will improve your body's ability to do that at a higher power later on. I think one of the unique things about this is now we're moving into this part of the training zones where our recovery time between the intervals actually ends up being longer than our our work time. So as you move through the other zones, typically your effort time in the zone was really long compared to your recovery time and you get into VO2 max and then they get to be roughly equal. And now we're actually moving to the intensity is so high and the effort is so hard that you actually take a longer recovery in some, you know, in some cases, especially when we get to zone seven, a much longer recovery relative to the time for the effort. I would say for both zone six and zone seven, the main reason to to recover less is that your workout doesn't last too long, if that makes sense. So there's there's no real detriment to taking a long break in your anaerobic capacity. Whereas something like VO2 max or um, tempo, things like that, it's, it's important to not rest too long because you want to keep your body in that state of moderate fatigue. Whereas for something like anaerobic capacity, you can take as long as a break as you want, but if you take... 10 minutes in between each effort, then this is now a two hour workout when it could have been a 45 minute workout. Sure. So sure. Um, I would say for anaerobic capacity workouts, you should be resting two or three minutes. That should be enough time to make sure that your power is about the same or drops off a little bit over time. The thing with not recovering enough is that you don't get the correct amount of stimulus because you didn't allow your body to recover in order to hit the same power numbers. So the concern here is actually under recovering rather than waiting too long and, and letting our bodies recover too much. Yep, that's it. that's exactly it because those efforts are so hard and it's stressing the energy systems in a different way. The objective is a little bit different. So most likely you're going to have a one-to-one -one recovery time at the minimum, uh, moving up maybe two-to-one, maybe uh, two-and-a-half-to-one, again, depending on the, the length of the effort. If it's a really hard 30-second effort, two-and-a-half-to-one is only a minute and a half, so it's really not that much. You may take two minutes or three minutes to actually recover from that and then uh, push hard again. I hate these workouts. I mean, um, for a road racer, from our periodization episode, you you do these workouts for maybe two weeks. Like You will do four total anaerobic capacity workouts. And that's because one, they hurt so much. And two, the the stimulus response is so quick that we don't need to do it for a long time. And you, you just you get the response you need as a road racer in such a short period. So I've only ever done, you know, two weeks of these at a time, only four weeks of work of workouts in your anaerobic capacity throughout the entire season if you're doing a two peak season. And so that's a total of like eight workouts in this zone. It, there's not very much to do here, but you need to 
stimulate them a bit so then you can use that zone as best you can in the race at the end of the race when you're preparing for the sprint or when you have to do one of these all out one minute efforts. Yep, absolutely. It's a very it's a very specific it's like a very specific tool for a very specific job. So now the last zone, uh, zone seven, neuromuscular power. We don't really put a number on this. It's hard. It's going going all out for the most part, or going as hard as you can for the duration. So it doesn't have a specific number range necessarily associated with it. You don't need a power meter or a heart monitor or anything really fancy to know that you're in zone seven. You you know because you're working hard, and it's it's not going to last for very long. It's, yeah, it's that hard of an effort. We we have this as humans. We have this natural ability to just go as hard as we possibly can. And that's what you're supposed to be doing every single effort in this zone or when you're training this zone. And the power will drop off over time, but it doesn't matter. Um, you will have some pre-prescribed pre number of sprints and your goal is to just do them all as hard as you can. And maybe you can look at the numbers afterwards, but normally it doesn't really matter. You're not gonna appreciate the numbers even if you're, trying to look at it while you're doing the workout and it's so it's so spiky if you, you know when you look at it and it's, you, you're not really gonna be able to tell and <laughs> you probably shouldn't have the mental capacity to do the calculation to figure it out well <laughs> you didn't go hard enough if you're sitting in between intervals trying to work out if you had the appropriate drop off between, you know, between your sprints yeah and, and it's also funny because we're well we're doing training here we're trying to we're trying to hurt our body so we get a hyper stimulus in response. And so the numbers don't really matter in that perspective. For one, you could have, you know, there, there are like interpolation issues with the, the computer. If the computer pulls once per second and you do a 10 second effort, you may have a difference of some five or 10% of variability due to where your pedal stroke was for each polling rate. And there, there are all kinds of issues with the actual number. And there's even the opportunity to have done the same amount of work, but your power is just lower because of the terrain or because of um, any number of reasons. Like maybe you were in the wrong gear. So the power number is different, but the muscle fatigue is the same. I wouldn't really focus on the power too much, but the, the point is we wanna maximally use up our creatine phosphate system. Just wanna, use it all up and our body will respond by making that pool of energy larger. And if we do it enough, we get a larger pool, we get to be able to sprint for a longer period of time. In my experience, maximal power doesn't really increase when you do sprint workouts. It mostly just increases in the gym, but your ability to sprint for a longer period of time or maintain a high power for a longer period of time, that's what really goes up. It's important. That's super important towards the end of a race, being able to maintain that high power. I don't know that the same is necessarily true of cycle sprinters, but certainly of elite running sprinters is running a sprint 100 meter race is actually about not slowing down as much as everybody else. Uh, like the, you lose speed towards the end. And so with that idea of they're maintaining their power, they maintain their force output, being able to sprint longer and maintain that high power longer certainly can pay dividends in a bike sprint, I would imagine. I guess we never really sort of formally said what a neuromuscular workout is. It's, it's really kind of easy. It's, it's usually like an hour, you ride around for 15 minutes, and then you find a flat, straight stretch of road, and you do a sprint as hard as you can. And then you or wait. Incline if you 
so it feels so inclined. Yeah, I guess the, <laughs> the, the incline is dependent on if you're a climber and your sprint is going to be at the top of a climb. Maybe you want to be doing these sprints on a climb. But for a lot of us in, in crit situations, we would be better off doing a flat sprint to simulate uh, the office park crit that we're going to be doing on the weekend. Mm-hmm. So that that's the only reason I said flat road. It, it doesn't really matter, except you normally don't want a downhill because you'll run out of gears and you won't maximally yep. fatigue yep. The, the Craig zone. In between each effort, each effort is 10 seconds or 15 seconds. Don't try and go to a prescribed length. Just... Just sprint, and, w- and when you're exhausted, you're done with the effort. You're done, yeah. And um, the, the waiting period, so the way the creatine phosphate system works is we use it up, and then it has to aerobically restore itself. We have to make more of the, uh, of the byproducts of the, the chemicals that are used. So the first minute after a sprint is spent recovering those, those, those chemicals, and then that's sort of the start of the recovery. I think that's normally what a lot of people will say is you actually aren't really done the effort for a whole minute and then you start recovering. And that kind of puts in perspective why you would wait maybe two, three, four minutes between each sprint. Yeah. Or, or more. This is very similar to weightlifting where you have a long rest period in between your sets, particularly as you get to higher weights to allow for that recovery process to occur. A normal workout would be starting with, you would start with something like six sprints and you would do one every five minutes and in between you would do active recovery or maybe endurance zone. And over time you would build up to uh, nine, 12, 15, up to probably no more than 20 sprints in an individual workout. And 20 sprints would be for like a track sprinter who uh, that's their bread and butter is the sprint. I would say for a road racer, 12 or 15 sprints is a solid number for a given workout. And it ends up being about an hour of total time if you're able to do them every two or three minutes. And then yeah. uh, then you go home and eat some protein. Yeah, no, it's again, this is like, probably it's funny because it's like the two ends of the spectrum are probably the easiest workouts to execute, right? Active recovery, just chill and ride for an hour or sprints, go out for an hour and smash it 10 times roughly with a few minutes recovery in between. Yeah. And, and very, it's funny. Very easy. You, you burn so few calories in these sprint workouts. You come home and you're like, do I like, you should, you shouldn't really have that many carbs. You didn't really, you know, do that didn't much. That many. No. Um, but make sure you get the protein for the recovery. Cause it is, it is of course very demanding. And um, I think we have said this previously as well. There is some argument for supplementing with creatine. For mm-hmm. for people who are really into this zone, and that's because the creatine phosphate cycle uses creatine, and so if we supplement externally with creatine, we can artificially boost this energy system. Allows us to sprint longer, allows us to maintain that maximum force higher. The downside is you gain some three to five pounds in water weight in response to this, but the trade-off may be worth it if you're a crit sprinter, a track rider, something like that, where the weight is not as significant. Yep. If you if sprinting is what matters for you, it's probably worth looking into. All right, that's the uh, that's the episode, right? Unless you have a, a magical eighth zone that I haven't heard of previously. I have not created an eighth zone, but uh, maybe I'll start researching to see if I can figure out the you know zone seven plus. Sure, these are your two to three second efforts. It's the one legged efforts at high intensity. Yeah, I think that's zone 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 eight. If you guys aren't aware, I'm 
very interested in single leg cycling. If you haven't listened to that episode, I think that's a good one to to refresh on, and that's a good way to do. I guess that single leg cycling is a good way. That's to like a, that is a, that is a special zone in some ways. And yeah, well, what it does is it it helps you um, withstand muscular fatigue better, um, but it doesn't necessarily help you with any zone in particular. It's just uh, about getting that peripheral adaptation. Yeah, we'd, maybe we'd have to think about how that fits in. Yeah, I don't because you don't do it necessarily at very high intensity, but relative intensity. Yeah, that's yeah. an interesting. It's, it's high intensity for the muscles, but low intensity for the aerobic for the system. Aerobic. Well, anyway, if you liked our episode or if you enjoy the podcast that we're making, uh, please take the time to review or share with your friends or retweet, share. Hopefully we can get a few more people listening, get a few more people to enjoy the sport in the same way that we do. Todd, do you have anything else? Well, until next time, thanks for listening. And as always, keep the rubber side down.